HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by Shaxbury Cider. Hey, this is Hannah, HRN's program manager. It's HRN's 10th anniversary and now our summer fun drive. So show your support for independent, revolutionary, entertaining food radio by becoming a monthly recurring donor. HRN is powered by a passionate community of thoughtful eaters, and we need each and every one of you to show your support so that we can keep bringing you your favorite food podcasts. It takes a village, and every dollar donated, every listener tuning in is essential to our continued success. So set up a donation for $10 every month. You'll show us that you want to be a part of a bright future for HRN. And you'll get one of our brand new limited edition Pizza Pocket t-shirts. So snag your new favorite tea and show us some love. All for the price of about two fancy lattes each month. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate today. And thank you. Oh, here's Glenn. Okay, how you doing? I have a question, doctor. Yes, what is it, Glenn? Uh, are old grains good for you? Only if you eat them. <laughs> if you drink old grains to excess, it has been known to be deleterious to your health. Old, ancient, heirloom, heritage. These adjectives pop up a lot in conversations around food, especially what's considered good food. But what do they really mean? This week, we've got four stories about people who are protecting and elevating our food heritage through farming, flavor preservation, and family recipes. I'm Kat Johnson, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. Back in episode 33, I brought you a story about Dr. David Shields, known round the South as the Flavor Saver. That was him at the top of the show talking to Glenn Roberts at the Georgia Heritage Foods Revival, a galvanizing event that took place at the Wormslow Historic Site in Savannah this past spring. I'm so glad to be here today uh, in this wonderful setting and um, agricultural landscape that's been going for hundreds of years. And Probably, given the native dimension, maybe as much as a thousand years. 
I heard about this event from Doc Bill Thomas, a true evangelist of heirloom products and the co-owner of Georgia Coastal Gourmet Farms. There's a lot of history here, a lot of agriculture here. One of the oldest fields, probably the oldest field where people would grow things in the state of Georgia is here. And so we're glad you people came out. I'm glad for the support that we receive from the community. And I want you farmers to talk about what you're doing. And we want to push heirloom. And heirloom is not cheap, but it's the best. And if you push and people know it's the best, they will pay for the best. They pay for the best bottle of champagne. They pay for the best steak. And now they'll pay for the best pork. They'll pay for the best syrup. They'll pay for the best rice. They'll pay for the best vegetables. The gathering was organized by Sarah Ross, the executive director for University of Georgia's Center for Research and Education at Wormslow. Her team oversees about 1,400 acres, growing over 450 varieties of heirloom vegetables. But what we really want to do is the research on those seeds for flavor profiles so that chefs have a full palette of colors to work from. I was thinking lately when I was working with a, a young child and they're using crayons, you know the boxes of the 64 crayons? If you give that to a child but they open it and there's only two or three in it and all the rest are gone, that's what we're working with today with some of these heirloom vegetables. In order to revive some of these quintessential southern foods, you first have to understand where they came from. Mark Musso spoke about one of Georgia's most famous heritage breeds. The Osceola Island pig is, is, is one of the oldest and purest breeds of pork in America. No matter which story you hear, which legend you hear of how they got on the island, it still puts them on the island around 1500 to 1503 with the earliest of the explorers. So we are Georgia. Georgia, my friends, boasts the oldest and purest breed of pork in the New World. Chef B.J. Dennis, who had just returned from a trip to West Africa, took the opportunity to emphasize the connection between Southern food culture and the African diaspora. I was blown away seeing old techniques that used to be part of the culture here still being done in West Africa. Um, fermentation that been lost probably here years ago still being done in West Africa. And, you know, we have to realize also that Low country cuisine would not be what it is without the Gullah Geechee heritage. Because we have a beautiful heritage in the low country, but we must forget that that comes, a lot of that is, that comes from West Africa. But conversations about Southern food heritage and heirloom products are not always focused on the past. They're also about where they will take us next. At that moment, the conversation took me across the yard to where the wonderful chef Matthew Rayford was cooking up something that smelled amazing. Oh, this right here, this is a my version of a Spanish frittata. And part of the reasons that I made that is because this part of the coast of Georgia was heavy Spanish influenced. And so, um, so I made this as an ode, you know, for where we are and sense of place. Matthew shared some thoughts with me on where he thinks the heritage and flavor revival is heading next. There's not a city in the United States right now that is not trying to make sure they have one of the best southern restaurants around. There isn't one city that's trying to do that. And all the other cuisines that are out there, people are like, oh, eh. But people want biscuits, you know? People want food with flavor. And I think the South has always been about creating flavor and also creating it without emptying out your whole pantry. But how do we create and preserve these flavors? And what should we think about when we think about food heritage? Once again, here is Glenn Roberts and David Shields. Just remember, what we don't know we have is the future of food. Think about it. We keep thinking that these things are lost, and we keep finding it.
I'm glad that you're all uh, uh, thinking about uh, the heritage of food, the heritage of agriculture. Think about the work that's involved too. Uh, it isn't just seeds growing in the sunshine. Human beings are laboring and sweating over those things and making sure that they get a proper recompense for their labors is an important matter. For our next story, Aaliyah Papes looks back at HRN's heritage with Patrick Martins, who founded our organization a decade ago. Back in the year 2000, HRN's founder, Patrick Martins, had just finished a master's in performance studies at NYU and wasn't sure what he was going to do next. By chance, at a dinner in Manhattan, he met Italian activist Carlo Petrini. Carlo was one of the activists who founded Slow Food, an organization and movement that works to preserve culturally important foods and food practices that are threatened. His rebel radio station was also the inspiration for the Heritage Radio Network. Here's Patrick on HRN's The Business of the Business in 2013. You know, I always admired uh, Carlo Petrini. He was the reason I went to Italy. He's the founder of Slow Food. He was a revolutionary from day one. I mean, he organized the second ever independent radio station in all of Italy. When the Italian government tried to, uh, you know, squelch any dissenting voices, they made the argument that the radio dial could only hold three state stations which, of course, is ridiculous because you can put a million stations on a radio dial. Um, and they figured it out, uh, you know, how to broadcast and, uh, you know, co-opt the radio waves. And that was the inspiration. His radio bra red waves, it was called. It was the inspiration for the Heritage Radio Network. And, you know, he's the one that got me into it. Carlo didn't just get Patrick thinking about radio, though. He also inspired Patrick to go into the meat business. While working with Carlo at Slow Food, Patrick met farmer Frank Reese. He told the story in 2014 to host Judy McGuire on HRN's Arts and Seizures. You started working with Carlo Petrini in Italy on the slow food movement. What prompted you to open a business, Heritage Meats, which founded Heritage Radio? Well, eventually we had worked with so many farmers, uh, many of them, but one in particular, Frank Reese, uh, who raised Heritage turkeys. His breeds were members of the U.S. Ark of Taste. Um, so, you know, there was a, a following around. What is bridge. the arc of taste? It's like a metaphorical arc onto which you board foods on the brink of extinction. Well, anyway, they tried to save these endangered foods. And so one of the first items to get boarded on on the U.S. arc, you know, where we're trying to raise awareness for these foods. Because remember, like with turkeys, in order to save them, you have to eat them. Because they are, their job is to be food. So if you want these not to be on the endangered species list, they have to become active parts of the market and raised in larger numbers. Heritage breeds of meat are sort of like heirloom varieties of plants. They come from a time before industrial agriculture, when our priorities were different. Instead of being bred to grow big and fast indoors, they're more likely to have been bred for flavor, resilience, ability to forage, fertility, and adaptation to their local environment. Raising heritage meat, like the kind Patrick's company sells, is very different from raising industrial meat. The industrial turkey or chicken has things that happen to it, like it, you know, was genetically modified to grow too fast and was unhealthy. It needed antibiotics in its feed to just survive its short life. It never saw the light of day. You know, the company that raised these animals might not have dealt with the waste effectively, um, and it poisoned a river. Uh, and then the workers might not have been paid fairly. And then you answer, ask the question, who are we recommending that food to? 
Now, we're very realistic. We're not like a utopia. We eat bacon, egg, and cheeses all the time. I have a club sandwich for lunch today. That's fine. It's about the slow turning of the wheel. And for the slow turning, one fact is true, and that's we should be eating pasture-raised, antibiotic-free, heritage-breed meat. You can hear more from Patrick on HRN's weekly show, The Main Course OG, airing every Thursday at 10 a.m. In the meantime, head on over to heritagefoods.com, where you can shop for red wattle pork, Aylesbury duck, Tunis lamb offal, and much more. Stay tuned for more Meat and 3. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Shaxbury Cider, who believes cider can be daring, complex, and eminently drinkable. Located in Vergennes, Vermont, Shaxbury make a broad offering of ciders, from the bright and fruity rosé to inventive, small-batch wild apple fermentation. Each fall, Shaxbury takes to the hills of Vermont to forage for the wild and forgotten fruit that make up their lost apple project. Shaxbury, producer of the first American-made Petnat cider, continues to experiment every year with limited-edition ciders designed to spotlight locally foraged fruit. To learn more, visit Shaxbury.com or follow them on Instagram at Shaxbury. Welcome back to Meat and 3. This week, we're considering the concept of heritage. The foods we're drawn to are often tied to a specific place and the concept of home. Our next story is about one man's unique connection to an ingredient of his childhood. Seaweed may be entering our collective consciousness as a health snack, but it has a long history that began before it started trending. On episode 353 of The Farm Report, host Lisa Held spoke with Josh Rogers, the founder of Cup of Sea, a line of seaweed teas. He also operates Heritage Seaweed, a retail space in Portland, Maine. Lisa and Josh discussed the role of this aquatic plant in his family history and recent career shift. I think people have this, a lot of people have this natural affinity with seaweed. Mm. They are curious about it. They, they um, feel like they know it's good for them. And yet they, they don't really <laughs> like, have it as part of their life. Yeah, they don't <laughs> know what to do with it. They don't know much about it. And so I wanted to kind of connect it to the foodie world. Mm. So the idea of like, you know, heritage pork Mm -hmm. or heirloom tomatoes or something like that. So it kind of connotes, oh, this is maybe a foodie thing. It also is more meaningful in terms of heritage. Like this is, uh, especially on the coast of Maine, seaweed is our heritage. Like Mm. it's been gathered for thousands of years um, and it's been used for thousands of years. So it's something like any sort of heritage. It's something to protect, but it's also something to use and celebrate. Right. So, so how did you get into seaweed? So I always, you know, from my earliest memory, I grew up eating a seaweed called dulse. Mm. It's a red seaweed. It grows in the Gulf of Maine and um, the North Atlantic and Ireland. And so my grandparents were from... Canada, okay. like just over the border in St. Stephen, New Brunswick. And they moved down to um, where I was born. It was like a mill town in the 30s for jobs. Mm-hmm. And so they kind of brought that tradition with them of like eating dults. It was a little more popular up in Canada. Okay. And so we would go back every summer and get big bags of dults and like hoard it and, <laughs> uh, you know, have to last the whole year. Um, and so I grew up 
having just that love and connection to this really distinctive food that right. we would just eat by the How handful. How did you eat it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, oh, you just eat it by the huh. handful. And I see it now in stores and it has all the cooking directions. Yeah. And to me, it's just like, no, just, just, just eat a hunk of it. Like a snack. Yep. <laughs> um, and so then I moved down to New York City um, in about 2005. I was really missing um, Maine, missing that smell of the coast. Because mm. um, that's where so many, you know, of my memories were. And then it was years later, I was, um, I was working at Google and I was on break. I was drinking green tea. Mm-hmm. And... I just was struck by the fact that it tasted exactly like kelp. And I had studied Japanese in college and I had been to Japan and I kind of remembered, oh, there's this style of Japanese green tea called gyokuro, which is prized for like seaweed tasting notes. It's really expensive. doesn't have any seaweed in it, but, um, and I was like, oh, I wonder if there is such a thing as seaweed tea because I'm a, big tea drinker. So mm-hmm. I Googled it and there wasn't. And so I, I started joking around about it at work, but I, it was like a stand-up routine. It just kind of <laughs> kept building like week after week. Right. And I started really thinking about it. And then there was an event in, in Maine in about 2014 called the Maine Seaweed Festival. Okay. And so I went up and on the drive up, I rem- I remember I had gotten pretty serious about it this, at this point. And I remember thinking, Oh, I'm going to learn something about seaweed that is going to make me, you know, not want to do this idea. And it's probably going to be about farmed seaweed. Mm. Because I was thinking about farmed salmon and some of the things in the past that have um, gone wrong with farmed seafood. Right, of course. Um, And so that's that was my only reference point. And what I learned, everything that I learned up there was how amazing seaweed farming is. Mm. And it just clicked. And I was like, I've got to do this. And so I think the next year, my family, my family and I moved back to Maine and um, started really slowly with, with, you know, just working on the teas, like in my house and then kind of growing it. You can listen to Lisa's full interview with Josh Rogers and learn more about seaweed farming practices and how he expanded his seaweed businesses by searching for The Farm Report wherever you listen to podcasts. Our final story takes us to the neighboring borough of Staten Island, where a restaurant is letting family recipes take over the menu in a major way. Thinking about our own heritage, a lot of the time we're reminded of our family tree. Our grandparents might come to mind, because they're the ones that first teach us about our own traditions and cultural backgrounds. But as we grow, move away, life can make it difficult to keep these lessons close. Sometimes, though, we find something, someone, or somewhere that helps us remember. My name is Jody Scarabella. Uh, I own Enoteca Maria. At first glance, Enoteca Maria seems like a pretty unassuming restaurant. Entering the homey 30-seat dining room, you can feel that something different is happening here. In the beginning, when we first opened up 12 years ago, I never had a restaurant before. I have no idea what I'm doing. I inherited a little money when my mom passed away. She was Maria, so I named the place after her. The brick wall dining room is full of dark tables. Old photos and action figures sit on top of the wine rack. It feels like you've been invited into someone's home for a special meal. Basically, it was just a way to comfort myself after losing all those uh, 
those figures in my life, my mother and my sister, my grandmother. So uh, at that time, I was just trying to recreate that by inviting uh, grandmothers in to cook. The first three years, we just we featured uh, grandmothers from different regions of Italy, you know, northern and southern and central. And uh, my grandmother, uh, my maternal grandmother, was from Sicily. Back in 2015, Jody made a decision. He started inviting grandmothers from all over the world to cook. Since then, every day features a menu from both an Italian and an international grandma. Today, uh, we have Nona Moral, she's from Azerbaijan. And uh, tomorrow we have Nona Young, she's from Seoul, Korea. Yesterday we had uh, uh, Nona Gamalat, she's from Palestine. And every day we just feature a different woman uh, and she shares her culture in a culinary way. Although it's the most exciting part about eating here, it can also be the most difficult for Jody and Enoteca Maria. The biggest challenge is changing that kitchen every day. Um, my wife always says that straight up gastronomy is very, very difficult. She said, you figured out a way to make it impossible. And it is. Changing this kitchen every day, today from Azerbaijan, tomorrow it's Korea, it's a completely different uh, set of ingredients. That's the lovely thing about Enoteca. It's a place where grandmothers can keep teaching others about their traditions, customs, and heritage. I see these women, uh, they uh, bring culture forward. They take the culture that was given to them by their parents and their grandparents, and they bring it forward to this generation. So that's how we have some sense of our identity. Luckily, we got to meet some of the grandmothers who were cooking that day. Morel, would you like to uh, participate in, a, in a, a little interview with Pauline? Morel left the kitchen, where her cooking was already filling the dining room with amazing smells, and joined us at the table. I am from Azerbaijan, it's a, and there is a small city on the mountain. The name is Kusar, Kusari, and it's a beautiful place. In 2001, Morel moved to the U.S. She now lives in Brooklyn with her family. I am immigrant. I came here. I am a single mother. I, I bring it here two little girls. They thank God they both have married and I have a grandchildren. Morale learned to cook from an early age. And she told me about her past growing up in the Caucasus region. I grew up that my father is butcher and I know that every piece like what what cost where I can use it. You understand? And mostly with Caucasian people we use a lot of herbs. When we put inside a lot of herbs, that food comes delicious. Cooking at Enoteca for the first time, Morel had some tasty things on the menu. Sharing her food, Morel was bursting with pride. I'm going to do gutabe. This is the special gutabe with meat in her. I'm going to put on table that the best, what inside me, like what I can do, I try. Because, you know, I'm a face of Azerbaijan. I have to do better. <laughs> I, I think they're going to like it. Before we tucked into our meal, the Italian Nona cooking that day joined us. My name is Adelina Orazzo from Napoli, Napoletano. Grandmother of four, Adelina has been at Enoteca since it opened 12 years ago. Making her Neapolitan-style food, Adelina and all the Nonas at Enoteca make sure to have something for anyone walking through the doors. The restaurant is beautiful. I have the fresh food, 
whatever you want it, brand, cabotel, pig feet. Come in Ottega Maria, che è beautiful everything. E già have a nice wine to get on the food. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Meet and 3 on your favorite podcast app. If you like what you hear, please leave us a rating and review. It will help new listeners discover the joys of Meet and 3 for themselves. Special thanks this week to Pauline Munch, Aaliyah Papes, and Lisa Held. Meet and 3 is produced by Liza Hamm, Hannah Forden, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council.